On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with skin diseases approached him. Keeping their distance from him, they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, show us mercy. When Jesus saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. As they left, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, returned and praised God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus replied, Weren't ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one returned to praise God except this foreigner. Then Jesus said to him, Get up and go. Your faith has healed you. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here we are back in Luke's gospel, and we find Jesus, as we often do, and Jesus is on the way. That's what, that's what it says. It's on the way. Um, this small little nugget, this little bit, is a good reminder that most of our lives with God happen not in a stationary way or at some posh destination or in a lab setting with all the variables controlled or in a prayer closet or when we're even ready. Most of our lives with God happen on the way. Maybe it's no coincidence in that Jesus also described himself as the way, the truth, the life. And before the early church was even called the church or even called Christians, like little Christ, they were simply known as followers of the way. As followers of the way, we are always reminded, and I won't speak for anyone but myself, I often forget that the way is the way. Like the, 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 the means and the ends have to be synced up. How we do anything is how we do everything. You can't build God's kingdom using the devil's tools, they say, right? Um, yeah, there's no, there's no extracurricular. It's, it's all the thing, right? Um, this has been particularly... Um, close and, and kind of in, in my face in this season. And, and we've talked and we'll talk much more about um, building talks. And, and y'all need to be so proud of and trusting of our elder team and our leaders as, as we've been engaging this stuff because there is such an emphasis on in internal checks and balances on the way being the way here. Um, that no matter the, the kind of... Um, anger or uncertainty or fear or betrayal or all of these mix of emotions that we're feeling as uh, if you're not in on this conversation, um, uh, our landlords are attempting to sell this building with not a whole lot of negotiation or input from us. Um, and it's, it's a good 
um, slowing, and it is a good reorienting thing to remember that the way is the way, that, 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 that Jesus is with us even in this moment and in this season, and, and by God's mysterious grace and wisdom, even what seems like what is in the way is the way. Um, so remember that this week as, as you encounter distractions and frustrations and all the things that make it seem like our lives are not able or designed to be with God or to uh, walk in and grow in Christ, that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is on the way. Let those with ears hear. Hopefully I have ears. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and he's, he's traveling along a borderland. There's a, a map for, for you, um, ancient, uh, I don't know, cartophiles, map lovers, right? Um, so Jesus is heading down from Nazareth, or, or maybe at this point in Luke's Gospel, Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, which is down through Samaria, and he's, he's on this borderland. Jesus is the way, and Jesus is on the way, and Jesus, in his way-making, is a border stalker. <laughs> he, he intends and finds himself on the border. Uh, Mako Fujimura, who you've doubtlessly heard me talk about before, talks about Christians in general and artists in particular as these sorts of border stalkers. There's this Middle English word for a border stalker called a mir, mir stapa. Um, it's a like mark stepper. It, it's found in Beowulf. Um, so flashback to your high school, late middle school English class. Um, but in Beowulf, there's this dragon named Grindel that is a Mirkstapa, a border stalker. These are actually scary creatures. They, they, they're at the edges of the map. The, the old maps had like the sea with, with uh, dangerous creatures because the sea was so dangerous. Uh, these Mirkstapa uh, populate the edges of our maps and our imaginations. Uh, I was telling the, the, the liturgy team before we were praying, I know there's a Lord of the Rings analogy here. Talk to Steph Homer if you want to talk more about it. I don't know Lord of the Rings, and I didn't have like 3,000 pages and 37 hours to try to figure out this sermon analogy, but it's there. Strider, Aragorn, it's there. Border stalkers. But Jesus is headed to Jerusalem through Samaria, and he stalks the border in this tense, like interstitial space. Uh, Mako says, uh, a mirkstapa is not a comfortable role. Life on the borders of a group in that space between groups is prone to dangers that are literal or figurative with people both at home and among the other likely to misunderstand or mistrust the motivations, piety, and loyalty of a border stalker. But Jesus stalks the borders. Jesus and his disciples have already kind of gotten hung up here on this border in Samaria. Remember earlier in Luke 9? I know you guys remember. Uh, the, the transfigured Jesus has, has been shown in white. Like almost, I picture kind of holographic. You know, 
all of those colors bursting out in, in more than white. And he had his disciples sent towards Jerusalem to get things ready for him. They were refused admission at this border on account that they were headed to Jerusalem, that they were going through. And reading between the lines, we can see some of the sort of religious or socio-political animus uh, here on these borderlands. No one trusted or liked each other. Jesus, on the other hand, uh, or on the one hand, was, was maybe counted among these that, that was in this culture. He knew it well. He, he grew up a blue-collar boy in Nazareth. Remember, nothing good comes from Nazareth. It's backwoods. He was probably well aware of what people were saying of, about Samaria. Uh, oftentimes, people in backward places compare themselves and say, at least I'm not X, Y, and Z, right? He might have even heard the coarse jokes told about people from Samaria. And for good Jews, Samaria was like the bad part of town over the railroad tracks. You either moved around it, you didn't stalk that border, or you, like, whatever the first century equivalent is of, like, locking your doors and rolling up your windows and rolling stop signs to not have to go through, or, or maybe just, like, you know, putting a interstate right through that neighborhood or something, you know? That's what Samaria was in their imagination. But Jesus seems really aware of these borders, but he doesn't seem to care that much about them. You almost see him kind of playfully dancing on top of borders, revealing them as fiction. I have a friend at, who works at Food Lion, uh, Joel. He's, the, he's Lakewood Food Lion's like, resident produce manager and theologian, and he teases me often. Uh, and he teased me a couple weeks ago that God doesn't care about borders, and I think that's true. And Jesus' behavior around these things shows that awareness and kind of an indifference. After all, this is, a, this is a hybrid space. And it's really fitting for someone as liminal as Jesus is to his core. Remember, he's, he's fully God, but he's fully human. He's uncategorizable as one or the other. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of bad theology and and uh, frankly, like, uh, her heresy has, has been a result of all God, all humanity, never able to hold them together. This is the eternally creative word made flesh, who also dwells among us, who has an address, who can be found, who chooses to be found on the borderlands on the edges of respectability, on the edges of conventionality, on the edges of power and influence, but with the poor and the sick and the disinherited and the dispossessed and the depressed with the least, last, lost, littlest, and closest to death. So Jesus is stalking borders and meeting some other border stalkers there. These guys kind of nibbled around the edges, but by necessity, not by choice. They lived in this fugitive space as Samaritans on the one hand, but also as people with chronic illness, like a skin disease that we now, we often hear as leprosy. Now we might um, know as uh, Hansen's, Hansen's disease, is that Monica? 
Hansons? You've, you've not done that rotation? Okay. Um, but they, they don't have a choice to be there. They're there because they're Samaritans. They're there because they are lepers. They're forced to the border. They're forced to this shady, ambiguous space where people come and go and sometimes things go missing and no one bothers to follow up because of their ethnicity and their condition. This isn't Jesus' first run-in with Samaritans either. Remember that woman at the well in John 4? Think of the protagonist also of Jesus' parable of the neighbor in the ditch, also known as the Good Samaritan. Both characters, one real one, the woman at the well, and one uh, fictional one, they move in these stories from the margin, from the borders to the center in Jesus' life and in his imagination. And neither one of these characters are the right person, the quote-unquote right person. The revelation of the Samaritan in Jesus' parable would have elicited a gasp from his audience. Some may have assumed the Samaritan might have actually been the, the brigand who put the man in the ditch in the first place, not the hero who gets him out. Samaritans are untrustworthy. They're half-breeds, and above all, they're really bad theologians. They worship God, but they weren't doing it right. Fill in the blank with your contemporary example of the religious outgroup of your choice, right? Jesus' encounter at the well also with the woman from Samaria in John 4 reminds us that Jews and Samaritans don't mix well. He reminds her that she doesn't really know what she's talking about regarding worship. And then maybe some of those old cultural habits are, are rising up in Jesus. However, she is expecting a Messiah. She does give him water. He sort of like polygraphs her into sharing all the sordid details of her past and her present, all the, the men she was with. Um, but in her future, this Samaritan woman and her Samaritan kin will, with Jesus and his Jewish kin, worship in spirit and in truth. That's how that story ends. It dawns on her that he just might be the one that she's hoping for, the very water for whom she's been thirsting. So Jesus uses the one who is absolutely not widely considered a neighbor to himself and to his hearers, and he uses them to be the neighbor par excellence. He uses someone that we'd never expect to be the paradigm. This sort of shift from the, the margins of respectability to create an unexpected neighbor would be, again, we, we need to make these imaginative leaps, would be, depending on what audience you were in, it would be like telling a story that holds an addict or an atheist or a person with a disability, or a follower of Islam, or a trans person, or an immigrant, or even a Southern Baptist, up as the one who might just possibly could be a neighbor. This is wild, earth-shattering, mind-numbing, and expanding stuff. We take Jesus takes who is suspect or inconvenient and makes them the star of the story. This, this 
Samaritan man in Jesus' story, this kind man not only pulled his assaulted sufferer out of a ditch, but also this guy set him on, in the story on, on his own ride. He, he put him up and he paid for him in full and then some. This sounds really Jesus-y <laughs> behavior. By the time Jesus gets to his absurd question, what do you think, which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered the thieves? The answer's already been provided. Duh, easy, right? Go and do likewise. Sure, no problem. Easy for us to say. We, we, we need to let ourselves be punched in the gut by these stories again and again, even as they're familiar. Back to our story. These guys, these ten guys, they are Samaritans, but <laughs> they also have another strike against them. You've heard the expression, um, like you were born on third and you think you hit a triple. These guys were born with two strikes before they even stepped in the batter's box. They, they, they were Samaritans, but they also had a disability that made them essentially the walking dead in their culture. Some conditions that fit under the umbrella of leprosy then are Hansen's disease now. It is like an aggressive, now we know it is an aggressive bacterial disease that can be both deforming and desensitizing. Isn't that the way with, with diseases? <laughs> um, that, that this disease in particular comes with both pain and the inability to feel pain. That's, that's so awful. Sufferers of this disease are also isolated. That's adding insult to injury. They're, they were isolated by their actual experience and their contagion, but also by the stigma that was attached to them. They lived on the border. They lived on the border of life and death. But from the border, these guys call out to Jesus. From the border, they call out to Jesus. They say, Jesus, Master, show us mercy. When they did that, they became kind of the group of them. Only the second of three people in Luke's gospel to call Jesus by name. Mostly because I think he was their border-stalking peer. The first guy that called Jesus by name was a blind beggar who could see, quote-unquote, Jesus before Jesus even gifted him with sight. The last one was the penitent thief hanging next to Jesus. Some theologians say that you should never see a single cross of Jesus. There should always be three to signify the, the, the people hanging side by side with Jesus. These guys also refer to Jesus as master. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. This title was mainly used by Jesus' apprentices. They had just met Jesus, but he was already teaching them. You see, by using these addresses, by calling out to Jesus, each of them was participating in his own healing just by calling on Jesus' name. Each was beginning this process, probably a long one. We read these gospel stories and we think all this healing happens instantly, but think about the, what comes next. Think about the, the long journey, the long journey of being rehabilitated, which means brought back to health, 
the long journey of being rehabituated. You get really creative and resourceful when you live on the borders for a long time. Sometimes you need to learn how to be brought back into community, and that takes a long time and a lot of resources. They're rehabilitated, they're rehabituated simply by calling on Jesus. It begins that journey. And so these 10 Samaritan lepers become our teachers in calling on Jesus to show us mercy. That's available to us right now, that kind of mercy, that that sort of healing. Call on Jesus' name right now. Even if you feel stuck, even if you feel cast out, even if you can only ever feel comfortable on the borders of the people around you, even if you're stuck in the middle, call on Jesus' name. And when they call on Jesus' name, he does something really interesting. Jesus always is, is down for these exchanges, these these transformations and these transfigurations. Jesus takes their show us mercy to, and, and he spins it and he, and he gives it back to them and he says, show yourselves to the priest. Show us mercy, show yourselves. When he does that, Jesus is kind of, he's doing a, he's doing a lot. <laughs> First he's, He's honoring, in some sense, the sacrificial systems that are around them. He's not saying, never go back to that synagogue again. Don't even try it. He's not doing away with the practices of the religious community wholesale. But he's also challenging it pretty deeply. And man, he's giving the priest a heck of a lot of work. Because to, to, to rehabilitate and to rehabituate these men is the priest's job as they stand between God and people, as they stand in the middle of the community. Now they also need to participate in this well-making faith journey. These men have, have taken the first step. Jesus has met them more than halfway, and now the, the circle is expanding for people who are, are implicated and involved and called to participate in a well-making faith the religious establishment now needs to wrap around them. One man, just 10%, if, if you get into marketing, 10% is actually pretty good. Um, it did not seem like a success to Jesus, but one man in particular is so overcome with emotion and gratitude, he also becomes our teacher, showing us what it means to be healed to be given a gift and to receive it with the sort of overwhelming joy of someone whose life is being made new. That's not like past tense, has been made new. That is, is being made new. Behold, I am making all things new. It is continuing. It is ongoing. This man's physical pain is being lifted, maybe slowly, maybe incompletely maybe in a way that he can't even anticipate yet. This man's mental trauma is being mended. Again, maybe slowly, maybe incompletely, maybe in a way he can't anticipate. His social alienation is being repaired. 
maybe slowly, maybe incompletely, maybe in a way he can't anticipate. This man's life is being raised from the dead. That's the sneaky thing that is happening in this story and in so many gospel stories. Resurrection is happening. And that's what's happening around us too. Jesus calls back to this man from the margins to the margins, and he says, get up. Like, the Greek word is the same word as is rise. <laughs> get up and go. Your faith has made you well. Get up and go is resurrection talk. It's exactly the instruction for all of us. Get up and go. Ephesians 5 says, wake up, sleeper. Get up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Stop participating in death and start participating in the life that has already been won and offered to you by Jesus. And go tell about it. Clumsily, unabashedly, like maybe like this guy who's Leprosy made his mouth not even work right and his tongue not work right, and now he's going and telling. He's figuring it out. Tell others on the way. Tell others on the edges. Recognize also how, how verdant the borders already are. Maybe stuff stopped growing in the middle a long time ago, and stuff's growing around the edges. That's where the sparrows are. That's where the lilies are. Go tell them how ripe for resurrection this space can be. We're coming up. You'll hear more about this throughout the month, but this is our, our birthday month for Oak Church. We turn eight as a community together. Um, at, at some point, we'll do the whole thing, like raise your hand if you've been here for one year. Keep your hand raised if you've been here for two years. And then like no one will have their hand raised after like four years, right? Um, <laughs> or something like that. Anyways, in reading this passage, I, I was just so thankful and so reminded by um, some, of the, some of the motivating um, calling and experience that we've had here at Oak and that, that, that we are having here at Oak. This, you know, phrase, hope, healing, and hospitality, these, these words that, that buzz for us, hopefully they, they, they also have deep, substance and resonance, and, and, um, and when you think about them, you think about the ways that you have experienced and expressed them. You've also seen that in other people's lives. And sometimes uh, when we get together, even in, in, in pairs or in small groups, uh, we often learn about the ways that we have expressed and others have experienced Christ's hope, healing, and hospitality through us. We didn't even know. Or, or maybe in spite of us, <laughs> we were trying not to, and God somehow still worked. And so that, that, that's, that's what we, we're here for. And that's, um, as, as we continue to, to parse through and pray through and, and, and work through building stuff in our, our future, that, that is, for as important as this physical space is and has been to us, that, that mission and that experience is not threatened by whatever happens. God, God has us. God is, is um, reminding us of that story. God is calling new people into that story, maybe even today. Um, and, and that cannot be threatened by 
development in other things um, that will persist and, and, and we will do that together. So friends, today from this passage, hear this good news and this invitation. The good news and the invitation are towards a well-making faith, a faith that makes things well, a, a, a faith that springs out of the way that God is making us well, a faith that is lived in the borderlands and on the way, a faith that, that participates in rehabilitation, rehabituation, for the kingdom of God, this, this home that God uh, is making us, that has come, is near and here and is coming in full. The good news and the inv invitation is to participate in healing our own and others, to call out to Jesus today for mercy. Jesus, Master, have mercy. Show us mercy. And the, the good news and the invitation is to practice resurrection. Practice resurrection by, by get, getting up and getting going. Will y'all will pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for challenging stories like this, for um, the ways that we see our faith uh, born out of your life, out of your words, out of your wild imagination that is, is just so deep and so wide. Lord, we, we ask for mercy when, when we're shallow and narrow. We ask for mercy when we... Don't ask for help. We ask for mercy when we have gotten too used to uh, the way things are because they're comfortable. We ask for mercy um, when we don't fulfill our call to um, be neighbors and to uh, be blessed to be a blessing to others. Uh, we give you thanks. Uh, for the ways that you come to us again and again, the ways that you stalk the borders uh, of our lives and of our neighborhoods, and the ways that you love us and care so deeply for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.